today we jump back into Romans 8. We're on this short, relatively short uh, series in thinking through the consequences, the therefores of the resurrection. Because Christ is raised from the dead, what does it mean for us? Now, what's the therefore? And we know Paul loves his therefores. But we're thinking about the implications of it. We're not letting Easter come and go. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just this one act in history. It is the climax of history. It's what all the Old Testament was driving toward, that holy week of cross and resurrection. And therefore, it is worth the contemplation of what it means for us. And we could go many places in scriptures to do this. But we are going to Romans chapter 8, and we're using this as a text, just working our way through this chapter, this glorious mountaintop chapter of the Bible. And, And the lens we're using to come at it with is... Okay, Christ has been raised from the dead. What are the implications for us? And we've thought about some things thus far. This is our fourth sermon today in this short series. And first, we delighted in the fact that there is no condemnation, that there's a a judicial judgment that has been given and made because of Jesus' death. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. And because Jesus came out of that grave, We now hear the judgment, the verdict given to all of us. There is therefore now no condemnation. And we rejoice in that, that the righteous requirements of the law, what God demanded of us, yet we could not keep as good as the law was. We were riding that train on the tracks in the wrong direction, right? We were using the law in disobedience rather than obedience, and there's nothing the law could do about it. But what the law could not do, weak as we were, it was through the sinfulness of our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that in the flesh sin might be condemned and the righteous requirement of God's law might be met in us. This is the first therefore that we looked at. And then we picked up on that phrase for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And Paul just assumes that we understand that, that those who receive the verdict, no condemnation, are those who thus walk in the spirit. We've received the gift of the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and we are those who walk in the spirit. We are on our way to the promised land, having been delivered by an act of a sheer grace from Pharaoh, and we are on our way of the Pharaoh of sins, you know, slavery to sin and death and Satan. And now we're on our way to the promised land, And we must, he assumes we are, those who will walk according to the Spirit. And we thought about what that means. Paul says, walking in the Spirit are those who do not set their minds on the things of the flesh, but they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It was a good little way to hold up a mirror to ourselves and look at ourselves and say, does that describe me? Is my mind set on the things of the Spirit? Of course, I have to deal with the things of this life, worldly and earthly things, of course. But where is my mind? Where are my affections fixed? And then last week, that wonderful and and really staggering passage about our identity as those who walk in the spirit, as children of God, sons of God, we said. Even the women amongst us, in this case, are sons of God in that grand title, not in terms of gender, but in terms of title. You are the heirs. You are the firstborn son. You are the one who inherits the name, the title, the rule, the throne of the father. And so we are children of God and co-heirs, joint heirs 
with the Lord Jesus Christ in all that is his. And what is his? Jesus says at the end of the, uh, you know, the end of the gospel there as he's ascending, all authority, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. What's mine? Everything's mine. And he shares it with us. We are joint heirs with him in Christ. This is what the resurrection means. Everything. And Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians 3. All, everything is yours now in Christ. Life is yours. Even death is yours, he goes on to say. Everything is yours because you are in Christ and you are joint heirs with him. So that's where we are thus far. Now, let's pick up and look at our text this morning. In uh, Romans chapter 8, looking at verse 18 and going down through verse 25, we're chopping up this section and not just tackling the whole thing. So let me go ahead and read the text uh, for you this morning, page 1005, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, Paul begins again and always, and we've commented on this, I mean, for, therefore. So we, again, need to step back and receive the context of this passage, which was the passage we looked at last week. But I just want to step back into the last verse of last week. And if you remember in last week's sermon, I actually mentioned we're going to kind of hold off this language of suffering, which Paul introduces at the end of the text last week and roll it into this week because it's the transition into our text this morning. So let's just go back to verse 16 where the sentence begins. Therefore, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Okay, so what we have here then is a condition that is given here with the if. If we indeed suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. Now, he is not what Paul, let's just get out of the way right at the initial. What Paul is not doing is saying, okay, we know your children, but now here's another qualification that you need to do if you really want to secure that position. That's not what Paul is saying. When Paul uses the if, he's using it as a description of the children of God. This is what it means to be a child of God. Here, here's a marker, and Paul has given us several markers about what it means to be a child of God. For example, you walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. That's not the way you achieve status as a child of God, but it is the way that the children of God are revealed because it is the characteristic mark of a child of God. They set their minds on things about. They, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
And here, Paul gives us another mark. Again, not, not something you have to achieve in order to hold your status. If you are a child of God, this is what will happen. Okay, If we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So I want to pause here, even though it's outside of our text, it's a transition into our text. And again, pulling together what we looked at in our word of exhortation this morning from 1 Peter chapter 4, I, I want us to sit here for a second and understand it. Because again, as I've already confessed, if you're like me, it's easy to grumble your way through suffering. To grumble your way through the providential afflictions that come to us. To grumble your way into and through a culture that is growing more hostile to the Christian faith. Easy to grumble about these things. Which makes Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount so convicting when he says rejoice. He didn't even just say rejoice. He says rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For so the prophets before you suffered and great is your reward in heaven. Or Peter in 1 Peter 4, as we read this morning in our word of exhortation, do not be surprised when it happens, but rather inasmuch as you suffer with Christ and are partakers of his sufferings, rejoice in it. This is convicting indeed. But what Paul is driving home here and what is confirmed in Jesus and in Peter and in the rest, rest of the scriptures, and Paul says it to the church of Iconium, it is through much tribulation, Paul says to the Iconians, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of heaven. There's only the, the, the path to the kingdom, the path to the final consummation, the path to glory is the path of affliction. It is the path of suffering. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, if any man or woman would come after me, he must pick up his cross. That's essential baggage. You can't say, well, I'm going to opt. I'm going to take the path that doesn't require the cross. There's no such path. If any man would come after me on this narrow path that leads to life. If any man would do that, he must pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. This is the way. I am the way. And if you're going to come on this way, then you must pick up your cross. Again, for people like us who live in the prosperous United States, the prosperous West, in which we have received Bountiful blessing. I mean, it's 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 right. It's unbelievable. We become accustomed to it, to the the freedoms we have, to the prosperity we have, to the access to good health care we have. I I I stop at the uh, subway in in uh, in Pine Bush. There's not a subway in Pine, but the restaurant subway. You know, wow, Pine Bush is a real metropolis. But it's it's but there you know there's a little restaurant there, and and so I go over to the subway, and the guy there's a great guy. I've gotten known know him over the years, and he's from India. And has some family over there and listening to him describe some of the things that are going on in India with the fake vaccines. They're, they're, they're manufacturing these black market fake vaccines that are 
just creating a disaster over there. And in listening to him describe the conditions and having the privilege to be in different parts of the world where I have also seen uh, uh, poverty at levels that we're just not familiar with here, and I'm sure some of you have as well, um, little, those become little eye-openers to the amazing, I grumble about uh, the healthcare at our local hospital and Andy going to the, uh, to the ER uh, a few weeks ago and just how rough it was there, but rough by like my standards, you know, by our standards and complaining, I can't believe this place, you know, I'm going to write a letter to them. And then you talk to him and he's describing life in India and what they're going through. And you're humbled. You're humbled. You realize, okay, I'm a spoiled brat. When it gets down to it, I'm a spoiled brat. You begin to live in your prosperity and it becomes normal to you. It doesn't feel like prosperity anymore. And therefore, when you become like that, your sensitivity to suffering, okay, what you define as suffering and what you've had to go through. Uh, really, really gets hypersensitive um, compared to generations in the past. I, I was reflecting with somebody about what that generation must have been like that lived through as young men and women World War I and came out of World War I into the Spanish flu, out of the Spanish flu into, okay, some, some up years in the 20s perhaps, but then into Great Depression and into World War II. And I think Wow, to have been in your prime in those years, what suffering. And yet I imagine what thick skin they must have had uh, and how they would look at me and, and, and just shake their head when I'm going on about the conditions in the ER at the, at the local you know, uh, uh, hospital. Well, when we're like that, it's very hard for us to get our minds around things that the scriptures say about suffering. We don't believe it. We don't want it. We spend our lives in suffering avoidance. Much of our lives is in avoiding uncomfortable situations. We do everything we can to put padding around everything so that we protect ourselves from discomfort or from pain. And when, and when Peter says things like this, and when Jesus says things like this, and when Paul says things like this, it really, you really have to dwell there to let it percolate down to remind ourselves what the calling of a Christian is. That the point of this life is not suffering avoidance. That the point of this life is conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, when he talks about us being his workmanship, as if he's the, the, great, the great sculptor or woodworker who is taking this block of wood or this piece of marble and crafting it into the image of Jesus Christ, then he's got to take the chisel to it. He's got to knock parts of it off and cut pieces off and then file things and sandpaper things and polish things. But that's what he's doing to this block of wood. And that's not going to be easy. I mean, it's easy for him in that sense. But for me, it's going to take cutting. It's going to take breaking. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take suffering. And I've been enlisted as a servant of the king in the great battle of the kingdom in which I'm to put on the full armor and put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's work. Again, in 2 Timothy 2, like a good soldier, like a good farmer, like a great athlete. 
endurance, 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 suffering, 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 hardship, hardship, hardship. And yeah, this strap it on. This is what we're called to do. And John Calvin says, you know, Christians, we endure the sufferings that the world has. We have to deal with cancer. We have to deal with COVID. We have to deal with the potentials of losing our jobs. And we have to deal with all these kinds of things just like the world does. But on top of that, we have to battle the flesh. The world doesn't have to do this. The world's not battling the flesh. We talked about that last week. It's like a piece of dead wood floating downstream. We're the ones who are trying to claw our way upstream against our sinfulness. And that's part of the suffering that we have to. We as Christians have to endure the affliction of Satan. Satan's not after the non-believer. Again, the non-believer is no threat. The non-believer is floating down the, the creek. But we have to engage. We have to resist the devil or else he will flee. And on top of that, we have to deal with the persecution of the world. And Calvin uses all this to describe this is what the Christian life is. Suffering is not peripheral to the Christian life. And Paul makes this point in that great other wonderful chapter of the scriptures, not the only other one, but another one. In Philippians 3, where Paul looks at his life and realizes everything I thought was valuable to me is now rubbish because I found the pearl of great price. I found the thing that makes everything else valueless in some sense. And then he says, yet indeed, I count all things as loss. I'm not clinging to this stuff. It's lost to me. I, I count all things as lost to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Like I've, I've lost all these things, but it doesn't bother me. They're garbage. Now, again, that, that's crass ways of speaking about suffering. But, but Paul is speaking, I don't even want to say hyperbolically, but, but Paul is speaking comparably. Like he's, they're not rubbish in and of themselves. My body's not rubbish. My health is not rubbish. Loved ones who I lost are not rubbish. Right? My job is not rubbish. But compared to Christ, it is. It's incomparable. I've lost all these things, but I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Right? Paul is not saying, well, now that I'm a Christian and I found this great treasure, it means no more suffering. No, now I have suffered the loss of all things, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. The, the man who finds the treasure in the field in that parable alongside the parable of the Paul of Great Price, you remember this, where he, he, he's out in the field digging and clink hits the treasure and then covers it back up, goes back to the man and says, I'd love to buy that field. He says, well, it's going to cost you everything. Here. Here, here's everything. Every, I'll sell everything I have. It's all rubbish to me now. So that I can have that field because that field has the inestimable treasure. And that's Paul. Paul has found the pearl of great price. I'll sell everything I have with a smile on my face. I am not grieving over having to sell all my stuff because I have the pearl of great price. I am not sad about selling all my stuff 
because there's a treasure in that field of inestimable worth. And so if being in him, I want to be united to him in everything that comes with him. I want to be united with him in the fellowship of his sufferings that I might also be united to him in the power of his resurrection. And you do not have the power of the resurrection apart from the fellowship of the sufferings. That is the lesson the scriptures are, a lesson the scriptures are driving us to. In Philippians chapter two, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not cling to that equality, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Right? So this, this, this plunging himself down into servitude, becoming obedient even to the point of the death of the cross. Therefore, the term, God highly exalted him, giving him the name above every name. If we want to be united with him in the glory, co-heirs sitting on his throne, then we must be united to him. We must take the way. We must walk with him. We must fellowship within him in his sufferings. Paul says to the Corinthians in the passage that Mark read today, we carry about in our bodies daily the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Christ might be manifested in you. This, it's, it's through the fellowship of his sufferings, the power of his life and resurrection manifest themselves to us. So first, I just want us to sit there. And now I, I have to move on to another point. So we can't sit there. Our mind is going to be able to jump off of it. And perhaps in Sunday school, we can come back to it. But I encourage you to get your mind back there and me as well to reckon with what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of suffering. But then comes the liberating comfort. So if, if first we have the condition, secondly, we have this amazing comfort that begins our text. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is why Paul is willing to joyfully endure the loss of all things. Why he'll sell everything to have the treasure in the field because the, whatever sufferings we endure, it is not worthy. I love how he says that. He doesn't say they can't be compared. I, I love the fact that says they're not worthy even to be in the conversation of comparison. We can't say, well, this is rough. I'll give you that. This is rough. But that's going to be a lot better. You can't have that conversation, Paul's saying. The sufferings aren't worthy. The gap between the pain of the sufferings, the difficulty of the sufferings, and the glory of the inheritance, it, it's just not even in the same conversation. That's what Paul said. No one, and this requires faith. This really requires faith. Hope, as he says at the end of this, to help you through your sufferings. Because in the middle of it, it really stinks to sell all your stuff, right? And if you don't have this perspective and you're not, you're not all in and believing it, then you know what? These afflictions seem pretty daggum hard. But Paul is saying to you, brothers and sisters, believe it. The glory is so great. No one, not one of you, not the worst sufferer in our world will be in glory. Who's a Christian will be in glory and go, 
this is great, but wow, that was rough. Like no one's going to be in glory going, golly. You know, I mean, I'm glad I'm here, but man, I, I, I couldn't do that again. That kind of thing. Like we say, when we go through a hard thing, be out the other side of it. None of us will say that. And you can say, well, Bill, that's, that's easy for you to say. You, you, you've lived an easy life. It's true. I have. I have. I really have. And so I'm embarrassed to even preach like this. But guess what? It's not me saying it. Paul is saying it. And Paul did not have an easy life. Paul gave up everything, even his own life. Go read the end of 2 Corinthians when he goes on to tell his story about how many times he was flogged by the Romans, how many times he was beaten with rods, the fact that he was stoned and left for dead. We talked about that in Acts. I mean, think about that. They picked up rocks and threw them at him to kill him like they would kill anybody else they're stoning. And they thought he was dead. That's, you know, it's not like they threw some rocks at me while I was running out of town. They stoned him and left him for dead. They beat him the way Jesus was beaten. That just horrifies us to think about. Yeah, well, Paul got that three times. He was shipwrecked, spent a day and night in the open sea, hoping he gets picked up. Paul was in danger in the country, danger in the city. He says his life was in perpetual danger. And then to top it all off, he's beheaded in Rome. It's that guy who says, listen to me now. Listen to me. This is it's not even worthy to be in the conversation with what's coming. In fact, he doubles down in the text we read in 2 Corinthians 4. He doubles down. Not only does he say it's not worth comparing. In 2 Corinthians 4, he goes, actually, let me tell you why you should rejoice when you suffer. Because your light and momentary afflictions, and don't forget, that's not Bill Spanger calling your, your afflictions light and momentary. How dare you? Okay, I haven't suffered with what you're going through. Grace, I haven't had a diagnosis where somebody says that to me. You have cancer, now we need to check your body. I don't know what you're going through. That's hard. How dare you, Bill, talk about light and momentary afflictions? Well, it's not me. It's the Apostle Paul. And he calls our afflictions, as bad as they might be, light and momentary. Because they last just for a minute, a blink of an eye. But then he says that these light and momentary afflictions are actually working for you. Not only can they not be compared, they become a tool. They're a tool. You can't see it now, but they're going to bless you. They are working for you an eternal, not a momentary, an eternal weight, not light, weightiness of glory. That's why it's not silly just to go, okay, in the midst of pain, I'm just supposed to rejoice. Like that seems so false and fake. Yeah, that's because you don't understand affliction. You don't understand affliction within the divine calculus. And yes, it's hope. It, it does require faith. You have to believe God as his word. Now, can you take him at his word? Is there any reason why you could take, am I just supposed to believe this in the midst of my suffering? 
When I hear a doctor say that to me, I'm supposed to, how am I supposed to handle that? Why am I supposed to be cheerful of heart? Not that things aren't hard. I don't deny that. I mean, Paul wasn't jumping for joy when he's being stoned. I mean, these are hard things to go through, but he's speaking in principle. Why can I take God at his word? Because I've seen it. I've seen it in the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered. He was obedient unto death. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. And that one calls me to follow him. It says, if you want to save your life, and indeed you will save it, then you must lose it. You must pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And trust me, the glory that is coming will so overwhelm the light that is coming will so overwhelm the darkness of our afflictions. The joy that comes in the morning will so overwhelm the grieving of the nighttime that you will not even remember it. Or if remembering it, you will remember it with joy. I have a, I have a, a, a quote behind my desk, Art Luce actually had it written on a board and it's in Latin, it's from the Aeneid. And it says, Perhaps even this one day we will remember with joy. And of course, it's by Aeneas, who's not uh, by written by Virgil, you know, who's not a Christian, and, and said by Aeneas, who's just been lot his city Troy has been burned by the fire, and he's coming trying to find a new land, and he's shipwrecked on the shores of Carthage, and everything's falling apart, and his dad's dying, and it's just a mess. But he turns to his friend and he says that perhaps one day, even this, we will remember with joy. And I love that quote, because I think, yes, this is, this is the Christian hope. Not perhaps. One day, even this, even this, we will remember with joy. The darkness of it will fade away. That's the, that's the amazing statement that Paul makes here. Now, because I've gone long on these first two points, I will have to deal with the others in Sunday school, but I'll, I'll, I'll just address them because Paul gives confirmation of this with two witnesses. He told us before that for a truth to be said, we need witnesses. And here he gives us the four of the witness and the two witnesses are creation and us. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed to us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into their glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that all creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. That is, Paul says, it's not just you. Creation itself, the whole created order, stands anxious, waiting for this to happen. The groanings of creation, the tumult of the natural order. I believe in some sense, Paul gives us a theology of natural disasters here, right? It's, it's, the, it's the inherent potential of creation that is just groaning and longing to be what God made it to be. And what Paul is saying, it will not be what God made it to be until we become what God made us to be. And so nature is groaning, looking forward to that day when the glory comes upon us and we take our place as the delegated rulers over creation. And then it's as if nature will give birth to new creation. Isaiah 65, 
and all the futility and all the frustration and all the decay and all the corruption of nature that nature was not intended to have will be gone. And Isaiah says, or the Lord says to Isaiah, and will not be remembered anymore. Even the hostility of nature, the lion and the lamb, the wolf and the ox, you know, is gone. And nature is just longing for that. And it is itself a confirmation that the glory we look forward to is in fact coming. And we'll spend time, we'll jump into that. We'll dwell on that more in Sunday school. But then also we ourselves, don't you, what Paul is saying is, don't you feel it? Verse 23, not only that, not only is creation have this groaning and this longing, not only that, but we also. Don't you have it? I mean, did you, when, when Isaiah 65 was read, did you feel it when he's like, and there will be the sound of weeping will be no more there? It's like that passage in Revelation where it says, and he will wipe away every tear. Or in Isaiah 35, when he says, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. But doesn't that just make your heart sing? Like, what will that be like when there's no more sorrow, no more sighing, no more weeping, no more anxiety, no more frustration? Just pure delight and joy and satisfaction? I mean, does, I mean it just makes your heart sing. And what Paul is saying is it's not only creation that's groaning, aren't we also groaning? Our hearts groan for this. We long for that. And as C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis turns this like into an argument for the existence of God because he says, if my stomach grumbles, it tells me there must be something to satisfy. When I'm hungry, it tells me there must be something to fulfill this hunger. When I'm thirsty, it tells me there must be something to satisfy that thirst. I may not get it. I may die of hunger. But the, but the appetite tells me there must be something to satisfy. And C.S. Lewis says, so therefore, if I have a hunger, if I have a groaning, if I have an appetite for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, it tells me I must have been made for another world. That's right. That's the goal. And you have received a down payment. You've received the first fruits, verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, that glory has already been delivered to you in part in a little deposit. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1 as well. He calls the Holy Spirit the guarantee. It's like a deposit put down to you. God guaranteeing. Because this does require faith. But God has not left you without a witness. God has put a deposit in your heart of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting the adoption, which we're already told we have. But we're waiting, you know, it's like the papers have been signed. Imagine being a little child who, who the, the, we're in the adoption agency and we know the papers have been signed. We're told that our new mom and dad are coming and, and it's just going to be so awesome. We, we just know how glorious they are and we just can't wait for them to come pick us up. But we're just waiting, kind of just like, come on, come on. And Paul says, that's where we're at. That full adoption. And he calls that the redemption of our bodies. Right when we we become part of that new creation, we're just longing for that, we're groaning for it. And the good news is, it's coming. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why do one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That's what hope is. 
It's based on truth. And it's a longing for what is yet to come. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you this morning to remind yourselves of what you're doing. What's, what's it mean to be a Christian? It's not just get through this life and get into heaven. It's get to work. It's pick up your cross and get after it. Strap on the full armor and get out on the field. Risk the loss of all things. It's all rubbish anyway. In light, in comparison to Christ, all good things in that he created them. But you know what I mean. What is there not worth losing for the pearl of great price? And as he told the disciples, no man has given up anything for me that will not be restored a thousandfold. Well, if that's the case and you have that hope before you, then wipe the tears because things hurt and things are tough. There's no doubt about that. We grieve, Paul says. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. So, hey, wipe the tears. No, one day they'll be gone. Get back to work. Set your mind fully on the hope that is to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which transforms even death itself to become a tool used for our good. Lord, these are words that are very difficult for us to understand. We find it hard to rejoice in our sufferings. We find it hard to rejoice in the loss of all things. But Father, it just shows how tethered we still are to the flesh. So we pray, one, that you would forgive us. We pray, secondly, that you would open our eyes that we might see tasting of the first fruits of the spirit that is given to us. That, Father, it would light up our appetite, our spiritual taste buds so that they cannot be satisfied by anything in this cursed age, but that they long for what is to come. And in light of that longing, Father, we serve you obediently. Bless us all, Father. We need your spirit for this, for we confess our flesh is weak. And like Paul, we do the things we don't want to do. We fail to do the things we want to do. So protect us from ourselves. And Father, by your spirit, conform us day unto day to the image of your glorious son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.